Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, good evening. Welcome to our Sutra Lecture. And uh, delighted to see for a rare experience more people physically here than are virtually here online. This is great. They have more, more bodies in the room than there are uh, joining us on the webcast. That's rare these days, which is terrific. So, and this, uh, with so many people on summer vacation, Many families are down celebrating the graduation of their uh, proud child, including a very own Julia down at UC San Diego. So we're here on Saturday night in Berkeley, California. Uh, this is June 12th, and we are looking at the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Adornment, the Ten Grounds chapter. And I'd like to invite you all, please, to turn to page 96 and 97. If we don't have enough sutra texts, we can do two folks per text. We can share with your neighbor. Go young, huh? Good. All right. We have uh, lots of things to do tonight, uh, along with uh, to accompany the explaining of the sutra text. We've got lots of announcements. And I promised last week that I would finally show my photos from Australia, which I've, I've been teasing you with for weeks now. Haven't haven't actually put the, sh the, the slides on the screen, so we hope to do that tonight. All right. We're on the very top of the page. Made finer through repentance and reform. Their cultivation gradually grows more stable. They make offerings to Buddhas beyond measure. They revere, honor, and respect them. Let's uh, see if we can chant that line. Tan Kui Zi Zhuang Yan Tan Kui Zi Zhuang Yan Xiu Xing Zhuang Jian Gu Xiu Xing Zhuang Jian Gu Gong Yang Wu Liang Fu Gong Yang Wu Liang Fu Gong Jing Er Zun Zhong Gong Jing Er Zun Zhong 
made finer through repentance and reform. Made finer through repentance and reform. Air cultivation gradually grows more stable. Air cultivation gradually grows more stable. They make offerings to Buddhas beyond measure. They make offerings to Buddhas beyond measure. They revere, honor, and respect them. They revere, honor, and respect them. Okay, lovely. We're winding up the first round. We're very close to the end of our Chong uh, Song, the repetitive verses of the first round. And this is reviewing, this is a repeat of what we had in the prose section. It's talking about the qualities of the Bodhisattva on the first ground. And because it's a verse form, it's really refined, really compressed and essential. So we're getting just two words to talk about an entire uh, Dharma practice, for example, such as repentance and reform. The, the Chinese says, literally, repentance, reform, or shame, self adorned, or of itself, spontaneously adorned. And one way to look at that is when we can reflect and soften, we get attractive, we become most human, and, and that of itself is attractive. That's, um, that's one way to look at this text. What does that mean? Um, it's talking about the Dharma of repentance. And repentance is uh, very ornate, such as we just had... Could I see the hands of people in the room who did the 10,000 Buddhas repent? How many? Look at that. Okay. So, uh, the, um, that's ornate. 23 days. 23 days of intense bowing. And... Everyone doing the 10,000 Buddhas repentance, um, the first thing you have to deal with is the body. Just to bow that long, to do slow yoga over and over and over is challenging, especially we're not used to moving our bodies repetitively that much. Usually, uh, you know, if you do an hour of calisthenics or you work on a machine, that's a lot. You're tired and you feel really... you're endorphins are pumping and you're sweating and you take a shower. But if you try it for six hours uh, and then get up in the morning and do it again and then get up in the morning and do it again then it's another story. And that's one. But the what people don't I haven't heard many people reflect on over the years. This has been the this event is called 10,000 Buddhas Repentance. It's a long, long ceremony. It's a, uh, a Dharma assembly is the name in Chinese. And the adorned parts are over the top. Uh, that is to say, it's, it's, there's, a, there's pomp and circumstance. That's, those are the words we use. There's wonderful uh, ceremonies involved in putting this thing on. There are 
First of all, the men and women are on both sides separate. There's, you do it, it's a group experience. It's a collective. You experience the 10,000 Buddha's repentance together with lots of folks, up to five, six hundred people together. And there's preparation. There's the hall requires flowers and incense and lights and drums and bells and little bells and wooden fish and there's uh, melodies that have to be balanced correctly. The melodies change according to what part of the ceremony is going on and so forth and so forth. And then the text, before you actually get to the first Buddha, there's lots of preparation, there's lots of preliminary ceremonies that have to take place before you bow to the very first Buddha's name. And all that is, um, it's called the Dharma of repentance and reform. So really externally, really beautiful. And what I'm trying to communicate to people is how ornate, how adorned, this word, Zhuangyin. This is the most adorned ceremony, save one. The most adorned ceremony in the whole Mahayana is called the Shri Lukong Fahui, the water, land, and air soul mass, which takes place uh, rarely. I think it's happened a couple times in the United States um, only. And the first time was 1987, that city of 10,000 Buddhists. That's adorned. That goes to another whole realm where you have to have specially painted screens with scenes of the hells and the heavens in order to set up the natan, the internal uh, platform. So, that's an adorned repentance. That's a big deal. Lots of human effort, lots of work getting the 10,000 Buddhist repentance on the road. So, does it have to be so ornate before we say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? Uh Uh-uh, doesn't doesn't have to be that ornate. It can be. Here it says, you spontaneously get more beautiful when you say you're sorry. That's a creative translation of that first line. Right? When you say you're sorry, when you when you reflect and say, I made a mistake, you yourself, in doing that, become your most human, your softest. Now, how does it work? Um, I will restrain myself. Mind you, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on this very topic. And if I started on page one, we would still be here for another 23 days listening to the Dharma Master read his footnotes about repentance in the Mahayana. So I will not inflict that upon you. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you just so glad that I am compassionate in that way? That's okay, no problem. So I will restrain. But what I can do, however, is synthesize my experience and say that I can essentialize it. Say that the most, uh, the, the wonderful thing about repentance in the Mahayana, and I think it's unique in the various yanas. There is a bit of, there's hiri and otapa in, in the Theravada and the Pali tradition, which means shame feeling like you didn't do your best. That's a very wholesome dharma. And those are part of the shanfa, the wholesome dharmas. However, the tanhui, the repentance ceremony, tanhui ishu, in the Mahayana, is 
pretty rare and special. It amounts to looking at your behavior and saying, I didn't do my best. I know I could do better. I fell short of my own expectations. That's essentially what it comes down to. And how important is this in the Mahayana? Is this just something that some people do when they're, they want to beat themselves and feel guilty? Not. It's really not that at all. To the point where our Dharma teacher, Samantabhadra Bodhisattva, who's over here on his elephant, it's so nice to be lecturing in June because the sun is still up when we're here at Sutra time. It's really great. Uh, you can see the windows, and see the bodhisattvas. Samantabhadra Bodhisattva has ten practices. He says, first is to bow in respect to all Buddhas, up to and including universally transferring all merit, right? all ten. There's a commentary that says, if you needed to, mind you, not recommended, but if you needed to, take those ten and pare them down, cut them down, cut them down till you got to the last heartbeat of it. What could you not do without? What is the sine qua non, without which not, of the ten practices of Samantabhadra? How many people think bowing in respect is essential? Do we want to do a vote? We could do how many, you know, cut them out. Well, we'd probably be here a long time. Master Chengguan Qingyang. <laughs> okay. Master Chengguan says two. You could do without eight. There are two which are absolutely essential to the experience of the Bodhisattva path. Number four and number ten. Repentance of past karmic errors, tan hui and pu Now, he says, kids, don't try this at home. Don't go cutting them out thinking that you're you know, getting a benefit by throwing them out left and right. But if you had to get it down to the real heartbeat of the path, one would be that ability to say, I didn't hit my own mark. I fell short. I blew it. I made a mistake. And then, taking the goodness that comes from that and sharing it. Now, how important is that? I mean, this is the heartbeat of, the, of our whole Buddhist tradition. These ten practices. Samantabhadra's kings of vows. Pushen The big, ten big vows of Samantabhadra. comes down to being able to say, I'm sorry, I didn't do what I know I could have done. I want to change and do it better. And then say, I share all that goodness with other people. That's the heart of the Mahayana. You know, um, is that an exaggeration? No, I don't think so. I think that's accurate. How interesting. So, the power of being able to reflect on your behavior and saying, I fell short. It's very powerful. Very powerful. Now, I know a married man who says, the secret to staying married, and mind you, I am not married, so I am not an expert on this, but I'm quoting someone else who is. He says, the secret to staying happily married is always admitting that you're wrong in every circumstance to your wife. 
No matter what it is, if you say, sorry, it's my fault, you make it through. You get through the gate. Now, the guys are laughing, the women are not. Why not? That's funny. How about that? I've heard that's true. If in every circumstance you say, boy, it's my, I'm sorry, my fault, that she'll melt. (laughs) She'll give in somehow. True or not, it's like, whether the situation, you know, it's like, really? That doesn't sound sincere, guys. No, but it works. <laughs> In every case, it's my fault. Sorry. That she will forgive you. She loves being able to say, it's okay. Don't, just don't do it again. You know. But how hard is it for guys to swallow that? Right? Now, if it's not sincere, the question is, is that what's the value of us? Insincere taking the blame on yourself. I don't know. That's a tactical repentance, maybe. <laughs> a strategic repentance. You know, it's like, well, maybe it works. You know, the alter- think consider the alternative. You know, cold breakfast for a week, right? That that for a week. Scowl. So interesting. Um, so it's got to be sincere to to do this. Now, here's here's what I get out of that to say that vow number four, I'm sorry, I didn't do it as well as I could, I want to change. Which is chan, chan hui, or chan kui. There's two ways to say it. That particular turn of the mind is really the heart of the Mahayana. And then sharing the goodness, why? I think, if you ask me, my bottom line is, I think it's because They say, everything is made from the mind. So, if everything is made from the mind, the mind, where is it? Can't grab it. It's invisible, weightless, colorless, no velocity, no no dimension to it. The mind is very plastic, flexible, changeable the mind can change. So if you say, this is true, I'll put my life on this, this is the way it is, by golly, and then it turns out you're wrong, what does it cost you to say, oh, well maybe we could do it another way? Costs you nothing. Why? Because that first assertion, this is how it is, I tell you where heaven and earth stand, you will obey me. That came from the mind. That's just somebody's mark in space. There's no ultimate truth to the first statement that when it proves to be a mistake and wrong and stupid and you blew it again, change it. And that change, guess what? It's also made from the mind. As is the Dharma of repentance, saying, no, I'm a mistake. You know. But how much do guys mostly, and women too sometimes, how much mileage do we get out of pride? Right? I never say I was wrong. Don't say you're wrong. They'll think you're weak. I'll walk all over you later. Right? Where is that at? That's at patriarchy. It's where that's at. That's at the a very widespread, universal, traditional social way of looking at manhood, which is what? Never wrong. Never wrong. Okay, so 
who am I to say the way we've done it forever is wrong? That's, that's a time-honored, culturally sanctioned custom, is the man, the father, is never wrong. But how successful is that as a model? <laughs> you know, it's not very successful. Countries fall because of pride. And we go to war because of arrogance and never being able to say, no, probably that was a mistake. I didn't, we didn't do that very well. Okay, so you get the point. So, I think this is such a powerful dharma and why it generates incredible gonda that you transfer. Because this is not a wimpy dharma to say, I was wrong. I want to change. Creates huge goodness. It's because it brings the mind back to life. Back to a spring state where the water's flowing. It's not ice in the creek. And from that flowing, flexible, yielding, wholesome, springtime mind can come great goodness. No Buddha accomplished Buddhahood by being right. Damn it. Right? Listen to me. Nah. <laughs> That's not a wholesome dharma that leads to wisdom and compassion. That's called the mind used wrong towards affliction. And yet, it's so easy to get that Saturn in there. <laughs> Rock of Gibraltar. You know? So, not everybody wants to cultivate. But if we do, if we say, yeah, I'd like to cultivate the way, I'd like to get closer to the Tao, that ability to say, maybe I didn't do it as well as I could have. Maybe there's more to learn. Maybe what I did is not the last word. Maybe if I reflected and softened up a little bit and said, no, I might, that might not have been right. I could have been wrong. Maybe I was wrong. Look, look again. To be able to say that is a wholesome dharma. Wholesome dharma. Okay, so that's why Tsan Kui Zhu Zhuang Yan made finer through repentance and reform. I translated that instead of made pretty through repentance and reform, which is what I could have translated for Zhuang Yin. Made finer. Zhuang Yin, we in our Buddhist Text Translation Society lingo, jargon, have, when we see Zhuang Yin, we immediately say adorned. So adorned is Matthew's Chinese English Dictionary's first choice for, for Zhuang Yin. And I think that's not a word that we say adornment means kind of frivolous. Adornment can also mean ornament, kind of like a Christmas tree bulb, you know. It doesn't have the power. What Zhuangyan means, I think, is fine, meaning refined, meaning really fine, just superb, excellent, would be closer, I think, to Zhuangyan. But here's, this is interesting, and I... I learned this just by listening. Nobody ever told me this per se. But when you look at a Buddha image, if you're within the tradition of the Dharma, you never go, wow, that's really pretty. Beautiful Buddha image. You never say that. You just have to say, that's very adorned. Right? It's not meili. It's, it's trongyan. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Here, there's a, some interesting 
stories behind that choice of words. Why is that? If you didn't speak Chinese, that, that illustration didn't mean anything. To say a Buddha image is pretty or beautiful moves it towards six senses, to a worldly appreciation of what is pretty and what is ugly. In other words, duality. It moves you towards, well, it's pretty, but pretty is a very worldly description right, of things, like that's a pretty flower. Well, wait, you know, four days and it's a withered flower. It's not pretty anymore. Adorned, on the other hand, has a more enduring quality of what? Are there aesthetic values that don't change? Something that is, if it's adorned now, it'll be adorned four days from now and four eons from now? What are the inner qualities of something that are both pretty and beautiful, but go beyond that, beyond duality, to where it's like always fine, excellent? Interesting. That, that, that there's a dissertation topic. If anybody wants to rent that, I'll take, be happy to rent it to you. I need a credit at the end. So, yeah, really, the aesthetic, eternal aesthetics. I think that's why. But I wasn't aware of that. I, I think I probably spent weeks at the monastery saying, wow, pretty Buddha image, really beautiful. And nobody ever said, you're so coarse, you're so worldly, you know. That's refined, that's adorned, it's not pretty. But I never heard anybody say, pretty Buddha image. You know? Just think of that, isn't that funny? Because implied in it is this sensitivity to what goes beyond duality that is just a harmony of features or something to something that is refined and essential. And I think what we're seeing when we look at the person who, because of their tankui, are spontaneously that, not pretty, not beautiful, but what? Fine. I think it's because we're looking at something that is essentially, fundamentally human at its best. It's humanity at its best. That, I think, has a lot to do with drawing. It's an aesthetics that goes beyond duality. And it's not, you know, it's one, one thing about beauty is it's, um, what do you say, it's culturally defined. You can have something that's pretty this season, but not next season, right? Fashion. Wow, beautiful fashion. Bell-bottom trousers, right? If you walk down Shattuck Avenue or Telegraph Avenue wearing bell-bottoms now, they've been out of style long enough, you might start a new style. Maybe they're back, you know, style is the cycle. But when I was an undergraduate, in college in the 70s, bell bottoms were hot. You know, six, late 60s and 70s. Everybody had them. All this fabric down by your shoes. You know. Bell bottom blue jeans. I had three pairs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't anymore. <laughs> and, ha ha ha, notice short sleeves. Hui Feng Fa would you lift your arm there? There you go. Yes, we are both wearing the current style of monk's robes. If this were 100 years ago, these sleeves would be this long, right? 
the AMS. Bell-bottom monk's robes. <laughs> Bell-sleeve monk's robes. But people woke up and said, let's save all the cloth and make two robes out of one and just wear normal sleeves, right? Because you had this, all this stuff. I had a, a wonderful, I'll never forget, whenever I think of those butterfly sleeves, my um, undergraduate uh, Chinese professor, Professor Amit Tagore, talked about uh, his childhood. He was the grandnephew of, of Rabindranath Tagore, the great Indian man of letters. And he was Amit Tendranath Tagore. And he spent years in China learning his Mandarin. So he was the Tagore family teaching Chinese in, in Michigan. So he said, oh, he said, I, I remember seeing a monk, a monk outside of Beijing. Oh, it was wonderful. He had those sleeves. And we met him in the, in the morning in the marketplace. And from his sleeves, he pulled puppies four or five puppies from his sleeves. The puppies were squirming. They were so cute. He put puppies and gave them to everyone in the marketplace from his sleeves. And I thought, oh, man. Whenever I see a monk with butterfly sleeves, I think puppies in the sleeves. You know. we, don't, we don't have room for puppies. You know, so, yeah. Sea serpents, but not puppies. So, so anyway, um, I'm thinking that zi zhuangyan, the idea of spontaneously beautiful, spontaneously fine or sublime, excellent would be a good translation, comes because there's something that we recognize that is innately its best. So what is humanity at our best? Soft. The softness that comes from saying, no, I didn't do it again. Didn't hit. I didn't match my own best efforts. I fell short, but I can try it again. I saw Master Shenhua um, when he was in teaching mode, when, when he was um, disciplining people, it, was, it could often be very fierce. And uh, Shifu would let you know that you had fallen short. But as soon as, and you could almost, after a while, you got used to it, you could predict it. And it was funny because it's, it's, not, it's not just an idea, it's a genuine, honest thing. As soon as you, who messed up, moved the mind to the place where you said, no, and I was really, I didn't do very well. As soon as that thought occurred, Shriva would say, try your best. He was just waiting for the tanque to happen in the mind, which was a sense of, no, you know, that's, I could really do it better. I blew it. It's my mistake. As soon as the person being, you could watch, a, you know, spectate on somebody else's scolding, their teaching, once they were able to say, no, you know, I really see where I went wrong. In, it's like Shifu was waiting for that moment. And then he would say, try your best in English. And you'd feel this wind fill you up again. To fill up your sails. Try, your, try again. There's always another chance in cultivation. 
when it's when the mind is able to say, no, I didn't do it right. That was a turning point, always. That's, I think, humanity at its best. The ability to say, no, I made a mistake. I acknowledge my faults. And in the Chinese uh, world, there are all these phrases. If you can not fear changing, that in itself is the highest goodness. If you make a mistake, not being afraid to change it, there's nothing better than that. Nothing better. That's one of those phrases that's in there. And then Shifu would come up with, Offenses that fill up the sky once you repent. Once you acknowledge you made a mistake, they return to nothing. They're gone. Now, is, that, is it that easy? Well, the, that's an exhortation. It's an inspiration to do that first thing. Once you repent of them, once you can change them. Now, I want to point out, mind you, we're on the first line. I haven't gone anywhere except the first line. We should at least get through the first stanza. Right? It says, 修行转坚固. Once people have this beauty, this... Uh, softness, this re- returning to spring of repentance, their cultivation becomes more stable. In other words, it's not flash-in-the-pan cultivation. It's not weekend cultivation. It's not holiday cultivation. It becomes more stable. Jiangu means it lasts. It's durable. Cultivation is something that they do during the weekdays, in the morning. When they're tired, so these. Um, what I want to point out is, and this this topic itself is worthy of uh, lengthy, lengthy exploration, which is how much this is not guilt, guilt. And interestingly enough, it's also not forgiveness or atonement. Boy, oh boy, look at these words. I just took part in a, a joint book writing, an authorship. Um, a friend of mine named Phil Cousineau is a writer and um, editor and he invited people from all different traditions to write about atonement. Atonement, powerful word in the Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Abrahamic traditions. Atonement is payback or paying back, not payback, like I'll get you back, but paying back, restitution, making up for Atonement, at one meant. The Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, that observance, is always translated as the Day of Atonement, they say. 
and there are Hebrew words that deeply, deeply in the culture that have to do with atonement. And yet, when you look at what is tzankwe and chankwe, these two words, is it atonement? Is there someone who forgives you? The person who makes the offense isn't, yeah, there is, correct. The, the one who forgives is you, the non-you, you. There's nobody home. That's the scary, weird, not to say weird, that's the strange and incredibly wonderful aspect of the Mahayana, which is there are three levels of repentance. And this is way deeper than I planned to go into it, but if you all read chapter 3 of my dissertation, you'll get the full picture, and there'll be a quiz at the end, and you can email in your answers. No, here's the idea. There is legal repentance, which is largely connected to the Bodhisattva, the, uh, the Bhikshu precepts, Bhikshu precepts, where you say, yes, indeed, I did. Uh, what would be a... there in the, in the Vinaya, there are some wonderful offenses. Yes, I did tickle the other monks in the water while we were bathing. I did that with intention. It was witnessed by other monks. And furthermore, I was glad I did. It was really fun. <laughs> and we all got cleaner because we stayed in the water. I tickled the other monks with malice and forethought. You know, and they saw it, and it was an offense. It was the intention, the means, the action. So, all done. And now I realize that it was a mistake, and I probably disturbed their samadhi. <laughs> so and we also wasted time and we were late for lunch so um, that's uh, a legal offense because in the Vinaya it, you are not supposed to tickle the monks in the water while you're bathing that's you know not monk-like behavior you lose your deportment so. and if the lay people see it they'll, sh they'll be sure to criticize you, you those monks are just playing around they're not sincere so um, you say, no, according to the Benaya, this was a mistake, and there is uh, there are offenses. I think it's a dukata, maybe. I'm not sure what the, which offense it is. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there is a tulachaya. So, an offense was committed, you acknowledge it, it's talked about, and you um, you promise to change and you create an offense. That's one kind. There is another kind of, another level of offense and repentance, which has to do with intention. The bodhisattva precepts that monks and nuns hold, and some lay people hold the lay bodhisattva precepts. By, they also involve um, Offenses such as mm, buying and selling intoxicants. Right? If you buy a six-pack and give it to Uncle John and hope he has a good time, 
and you're holding the lay bodhisattva precepts, you have committed an offense because you're contributing to the, the, lock, the loss, loss of wisdom of someone else when they're intoxicated. But most of the bodhisattva offenses have to do with selfishness. They have to do with attitude. You abandon your bodhi resolve and you wish somebody ill with your mind. Drop dead, you creep. Right? If you're holding the bodhisattva precepts and you say, drop dead, you creep, you know, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, maybe they deserve it. You know, maybe you were righteous in saying that. But that attitude has left behind this wish that all beings become Buddhas before you. Because if you want them to drop dead, clearly you're obstructing their progress towards Bodhi. Right? So, many of the Bodhisattva precepts have to do with an offense that comes from failing to bring forth the highest resolve. Subtle, huh? The offense comes when you don't measure up to an attitude, when you retreat from a mind that is completely dedicated to the benefit of others. Wrap your mind around that one. That's so interesting that a failure to bring forth this nobility of mind is the offense. How do you repent of that? First of all, how does anybody know? Right? How does anybody know? These are subtle. These are really lofty and wonderful, wonderful states of mind. To have a mind that is so noble, so high and altruistic, unselfish and pure, that you know when your thoughts have strayed over towards harming someone else and yourself in the process. You're harming your putishin, your bodhi resolve, when you when your mind leaves these. Okay, let's say that happens, and how many times a day does my mind leave the bodhi resolve? You could say, how many times a day does my mind approach the bodhi resolve? It's the other way around. A lot. It happens a lot. That's why the bodhisattva precepts are not easy to hold well. They're definitely a goal that we aspire to, but probably fall short of all the time. That's okay. Try again. Don't quit on them because they are the highest standards of ethical commitment, I think. They're, they're high. I don't want to say they're the highest, but they're certainly noble. All right. What do you do? If you take it seriously, you say, I fell away from my Bodhi resolve and I would like to change. I would like to try to do better. I want my mind to be in that selfless, pure place all the time, in that light, all the time. So, what you do is you ask the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas for a sign. Right? You request a ganyin. You bow. You bow and repent and say, I, wanna, I don't want to be afflicted by myself. I, I set that burden down. I don't want to pick it up again. And, close my eyes into this little tunnel of me and mine, going straight ahead to get the good stuff for me, fighting for my benefits. That's a dark place. And I, want, I was in the light, I was on the mountaintop, and I realized I jumped down into the valley and it's dark down there. I want to climb back up. And if you are sincere, 
you can experience state whereby you have a gardening, you have a linga. And traditionally, the way they describe it is you see flowers in space, you hear sounds, celestial sounds, the Buddhas rub the crown of your head, they, you have an experience that is very auspicious and wonderful, and you know you've been returned to purity. Now, mind you, those are rare states, and it's not that you are hoping to see the Buddhas in space. Often if you want it, you'll obstruct it. And if people who are hoping to see Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, are, that's a mind-seeking, you know. So, but there is a way to repent. Okay, point, third level of repentance. And this is, I remember I can trace my way back to where I stepped out into this explanation. So we'll, we'll be patient and get back there. This is a long digression, right? Into a footnote. We're digressing into chapter three, and that's deep water. Um, the third level of repentance says when you realize the way, when you when you get enlightened, okay, that's the contemporary way to talk about it. When you realize the success in your cultivation, which is to say you break through forever the illusion of the small self, you on the spot clear away all your repent all your offenses you break through all your karma, your offense karma. Now, mind you, there's, there are levels like the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, went through three experiences of karmic retribution after Buddhahood, right? But they say, if you can realize the Tao, then you, because you have transformed the self, you have turned consciousness to wisdom. You have ming xin jian xin. You've seen your nature, um, lit up the mind. Then these small offenses are gone on the spot because the self that created the offense is no longer. Okay, do you see the connection back to these points? It's like, who's in there saying, I blew it, I made a mistake? At that level of, of awareness, which is you, this graduation after lifetimes of study, right? At that level, you, you do it all at once because you've seen through the self. So if the self is empty, where do the offenses land? Right? See the, how this is the deepest level of repentance? That is true repentance and reform. Okay, so when the Sixth Patriarch says the body is no Bodhi tree, the mind no mirror stand bright, basically there's not one thing where can dust the light. That's it. That's what he's pointing to. Okay. 最重新起将心上 Offenses arise from the mind 
Repentance is made by the mind. When the mind is no longer, offenses are also gone. Mind forgotten, offenses clean, both are empty. This is what we call true repentance and reform. Okay? That's the second half of our repentance verse that we recite when, um, when we're doing repentance ceremonies. Now, you can't say it of yourself. Okay? Your wife is catching you up on some horrible thing that you've done. You say, come on, I don't exist. I'm completely empty and so are my offenses. This is true repentance and reform. She'll say, over my dead body. <laughs> Kneel. <laughs> so you can't say it of yourself. You know, I've emptied out the self and so I'm free of offense. You can't blame me. It's not my fault. Okay. So, what an interesting idea. If What is the self? This gets right to the heart of the fundamental questions. Who am I? Right? Who am I? Well, you're that loser who screwed up. Well, no, yeah, I am. You know. But then again, I'm sorry. And I really, now I see what I did wrong. So, this is not forgiveness. Because who is in there to say, oh, it's okay. All right. Now, having said that, one of the authors of, in the book, Native American. Mm. Now, is he happily going to say, well, there is no atonement. There was no offense. You white folks systematically rolled across our ancestral lands and made us sick with blankets that you knew had smallpox on them before you gave them to my wife and children and grandparents. And they warmed themselves with those blankets and died by the millions. It's okay, no problem. No, nobody is that saintly. So, as I say this, there is no forgiveness, there is no atonement. This has to be put into a historical context. If you look at the Holocaust, you can't say, oh, you know, no problem. It's not that easy. There's pain and tears and grief and wrong and injustice here. We're talking principle. We're looking at clear seeing into the roots of the human experience from the point of view of somebody who saw the roots, saw the basis of his mind, the Buddha. He was out there on the mountainside and said, I'm not going to quit until I see through to the bottom. I want to understand this. And did he make any mistakes? Yes. That's one of the best parts of, the, of our founding story. The Buddha, in his cultivation, the prince on the mountainside, made a mistake. What did he do? He heard somebody say, cut off desire, you'll get enlightened. 
And he said, great, that's a true principle. Well, where does desire come? Well, I notice that when my belly's full, my mind starts thinking about how to make my body comfortable. As soon as I'm eating my fill, I start thinking of comfort, right? I start feeling warm and I start looking for company. You know, I want to have a good time. I want to go dancing. Desire arises in my mind when I'm full. Therefore, food equals desire. Ha! Principle. Cut off food. Cut off desire. <coughs> Wrong. Mistake. So he tried it, though, because he was vigorous in his cultivation. My God, he'd put it all down. He'd risk, he'd let go a lot. He had paid for his asceticism with the world's finest lifestyle that he let go. The palace, his wife, the prince's role, the future king. Come on. He gave everything up. Right? So he had definitely paid for his, his experiments with asceticism. And there was a lot at stake. So, of course he wanted to end desire. Because that was true. Desire is the source of suffering. Desire brings us back. That's a true principle. All right. The problem was in implementing that awareness, he made a mistake. He went to an extreme. People with bodies have to eat. Not everyone. Whatever happened to that Swami who they were experimenting on, who hadn't eaten for four years? Last month they found him. Anybody follow him? They found this Hindu Swami who was an Airtarian. Right? You're all familiar with Airtarians, right? Ah, I'm full. Ah, it's really good. Prime. Right? No, I'm, no, I'm kidding, of course. But there was a Swami. They found him. They, they had pretty much documented that he had not eaten for four years. And they showed his picture. He looked Swami with a mustache. He looked pretty good. Okay, nobody knows about that? Check it out. Check Google. All right. So, people with bodies need to eat. The prince was out there on the mountainside, said, if I don't eat, I'll end desire. Hubba hubba. Chayo. <laughs> Guess what? Didn't work. And he said, Tan Kui. Mistake. That's the tur- that a big turning point in our founding story. And he came back to the middle. He left the extreme because it wasn't going to work. He's going to die. He was eating one grain of rice. Our, our tradition says one grain of rice and one sesame seed. Ima, ima, right? Every day. Skin and bones. You've seen the picture, right? The patient immortally ascetic out there with every rib showing and his veins going up. That's not a vigorous cultivator. That's a soon-to-be feeble cultivator who can't even hold his or her head up. Mistake. He went to an extreme. Mistake. What did he do? Sorry, that's not going to work. Change course. He came back to the middle. Boy, underline that in our founding story. That's really important. The Buddha blew it on the mountainside. The prince, as a cultivator, changed course came back. So, frequently, 
in our lifetimes of cultivation, we can make mistakes. We can get it wrong. We can go too far or not enough. And when we return, either by reducing or by adding, we reach the middle and we come close to the Tao, to the Dharma. Too much and too little are the same thing. Tai bu and bu ji shi yang. Bu shi zhong dao. So, that's interesting. Okay, the Buddha in our founding story says, Yeah, I made a mistake. I didn't do well. I'll change it. Ah, success. Okay, so, it's not guilt. That's another whole chapter. How much this is not guilt. It's what? Shame and guilt are different. Shame, as I understand it, my best crack at this, and I've been thinking about this, shame says, I didn't measure up to the best. I fell short of my standards. I knew better, but I didn't get there. I can do better. That's, I'm ashamed. Hiri and Otapa in the sand in Pali. A sense of shame. That's very wholesome. That's that's called in, in Buddha Dharma, it's called a, a shanta. That's a wholesome dharma. It's the opposite of a fana. So to be able to say, eh, I feel bad. My heart hurts because I didn't do my best. And I want to try my best. What that allows is humanity to flourish. It's not punitive. It's not punishing. It's not mean. It's not harsh. The way we interpret often, often dads you know, are the ones who are unable to for, unable to to allow for change. As soon as Master Shuenhua saw a softening, the ability to say. Mm, didn't do it well. The next words were, try your best. Support. Come back. Try again. Because there's a renewal. There's a, a life. There's humanity. in that. Okay. Get it. So, guilt is... I'm not sure about guilt. Guilt is more socially built. I don't want to go into it tonight because it's, a, it's an unhelpful dharma. It's the inability to let go and say, try your best, often. Um, the notion of a kind of, um, I, don't, I don't even want to go into it, original sin is, is not a helpful dharma. Okay. Made finer through repentance and reform. Their cultivation gradually go, grows more stable. Bit by bit, as we do it more, we soften and we get drawn in, we get adorned. Gong yang wu yang fo, gong jing er zun zhong. They make offerings to Buddhas beyond measure, they revere, honor, and respect them. Okay, this is um, in Samantabhadra's vows, this is number three. It's also number two. 
It's Numbers 2 and 3. The first of these vows that I mentioned earlier is, first is to worship and respect all Buddhas. In other words, Li Jing, Zhu Fu, you bow and respect. The second is Chang Zan, Rulai, praise the thus come ones. The third is make extensive offerings. Make offerings to, to Buddhas a lot. So in those three, particularly two and three, we have these next two lines. This is what bodhisattvas do. On the first stage, on the first ground of the ten grounds, bodhisattvas repent, vow number four. They make offerings, vow number three, and they honor, respect, and revere Buddhas and bodhisattvas, vow number two. This is what they do. And bowing is a part of all of that, so that's vow number one. So, how interesting. This is what Samantabhadra's vows are all about. These are, of the ten vows of Samantabhadra, these are the four personal ones that you do yourself. They're not social, they're not universal. You can look at those ten vows and find personal, social, universal. Ones you yourself do, ones you do in company, and then the ones that expand to include everyone. Of the universal ones, there are only two. And it's uh, accord with living beings universally and transfer the merit everywhere. Um, the first four are personal. You bow, you praise, you make offerings, you repent. You yourself do those. Then the next four are social. So you uh, rejoice in others' merit and virtue, you joyfully support them, you request the turning of the Dharma wheel. You want the Buddhas to teach. You ask the Buddhas to stay. And you learn from the Buddhas. Those are the social ones. Okay. So these are the first four here. They make offerings to Buddhas beyond measure. There's, this is interesting. I didn't understand when I first started out the importance of making offerings to the Buddhas. It's like, you want to give things to the Buddhas? It's up to you. It's good. It's nice to be generous. But there's more. There's a lot more going on here. And I have to say, I don't really understand completely the, the deeper meanings of this. But in the sutras, particularly in our sutra, the bodhisattvas are always up to the highest level. Bodhisattvas are making offerings to Buddhas. Um, for example... Today, in the monastery at 9, nine o'clock, we bowed the Pumampin, the Universal Door chapter of the Lotus Sutra. And no less a figure than Guanyin Bodhisattva shows up in the Universal Door chapter and she has a necklace. And somebody makes this wonderful offering of a Necklace, maybe with four strands of incredible pearls. Very beautiful. Anybody who looks at it would go, wow. Eye-filling. And what does Guanyin Bodhisattva do? Guanyin Bodhisattva does not lift the lid of her jewel box and put it inside and close it and lock it. You know, and say, hmm, I'll be back tonight to look at that. I'll try it in the mirror. <laughs> you see Guanyin, you know, looking sideways. and that, looks, that would look good on my basic black dress, you know. Not, not. 
Ganyan Bodhisattva immediately takes the strand of pearls, separates them, and gives it to Shakyamuni Buddha and to the stupa of many jewels to Tagata. Immediately passes it on. And uh, this is only after refusing it twice. Right? Somebody wants to give it, refuses it, and then finally takes it and says, okay, good, nice, beautiful pearls. Here. Passes them right on. They're in Guanyin's hands for about 30 seconds. Like that. So, that's more than just a nice story. What's being taught? Guanyin Bodhisattva, number one, is not greedy for nice stuff. Number two, there is value in offerings. What it does is it establishes wholesome ties. Jie Giving things makes wholesome connections, good ties with people. It's really built into our nature that when we get things, something lights up. It's true. You know, parents look at your kids on birthdays, on Christmas. Why do mom, why do grandmas hand out Hongbao on New Year's, right? Go on in. Grandmas pay the kids with big eyes, you know. Grandma's got this stack of Hongbao, she's got lots of grandkids, you know. She hands them out, the kids are like, It's built in. So, you, the bodhisattvas, use that natural lighting up to deepen their ties. By giving to the Buddhas, it's not that the Buddhas are happy because they're getting good stuff from the bodhisattvas, right? The Buddhas are hoping for an iPad, you know. <laughs> Let me check and see. It's got, oh, 3G and Wi-Fi. Good, it's the new one. Buddhas are not greedy for iPads. But, um, it's that the Buddhas want to cross living beings over to bring them to their state of joy and true self and virtue, liberation. And so whatever allows someone to get closer, a good thing. So, sure, make an offering. Fine. The Bodhisattva, at the same time, gives, every time you give something away, you give a little bit of yourself away at the same time. You lighten up your load when you donate, when you give. That's, you lighten up the self. You give away a layer of that thick as paint self that is illusory and use not so helpful. You give it away bit by bit by bit. Bodhisattvas give with their minds all the time. Transference is the giving of Dharma. May all living beings share this goodness. Share it. There's a kind of giving with the mind. So, they make offerings to Buddhas beyond measure, revere, honor, and respect them. Um... The revering, honor, and respecting, I'll never forget, um, there's a, a very, very funny film about Midwestern life in Minnesota. And in the film, um, there's a, a martial arts studio. <laughs> The, the it's a small town in Minnesota, and it's their first the first you know all American karate studio, and the teacher is a doofus. The teacher is just a joke, 
but he's he's the only one they've got, you know, and he's he's got the all the exterior aspects of a karate sifu. And I remember in this 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 image, he's got these country kids, you know, they're in there learning karate, and he's teaching them Asian culture and karate and uh, physical physical fitness all at the same time and this this teacher is so much caught up in the outer aspects of things that he's shouting at these Minnesota farm kids respect your sifu respect your sifu and these kids are hmm you know <laughs> doing it right you know and he's shouting at them respect your sifu and these kids are, oh, okay, sure, you creep, you know, okay. <laughs> this is all form, you know, there's no heart behind it at all, but he's demanding that they respect their people. And he's, he's got his E on wrong, you know, and he's just into the externals deeply. And it was like, okay, so we start by respecting our people. But bit by bit, when it comes to the Buddhas, it's like... Why do we respect the Buddhas? The Buddha, for many of us, is a name, right? And we have these beautiful images here in the Buddha Hall. You look at Amitabha, you look at at Vairochana, you look at Medicine Buddha, and they. Some of us think, you know, I when I first got into a room with Buddhas, I had a hard time raising my eyes to look at them. Why? I was raised a Methodist, a Protestant Methodist, and I was very aware of the Ten Commandments. What did the Ten Commandments say? Ho, ho, ho. Thou shalt not. Right? Have any gods before me. Thou shalt not worship graven images. Well, count the graven images in this room right this minute. Sap! <laughs> right? I didn't know. I was told thou shalt not. Directly told these are wrong. I mean, what is unclear about thou shalt not? Right? Is that ambiguous? No, don't. You don't want to do that. And the stories that come to us from the Hebrew Scriptures about Baal. Baal was one of those deities in the uh, the cultural matrix in the mix of of society that was the the early that the early Israelites had to deal with it was the Baal of of what became uh, of, of Israel and the uh, Palestine the, those, the current geographical names don't do it, but that whole area of the Middle East. Baal was the deity of a cult that was distinctly in competition and in conflict with the, uh, the early emerging religions of the Jews. And when they said, thou shalt not, they were clear about who you were not supposed to draw near. And it was probably a pretty good idea not to draw near the, those groups. Okay, so here I am, a Methodist in a Buddha hall, looking at graven images and thinking, uh-oh, how am I going to make sense of this? Do I just shut it out? 
Do I just say, thou shalt not, unless it's a Buddha image, because Buddha images are okay. He looks pretty friendly, you know. He looks at you. He's not smiling, but he doesn't look shadowy, you know. Are you sure it's thou shalt not? You know. It took me a while to actually raise my eyes and look at a Buddha image. I had a thought in the back of my mind, what if? What if I get zapped? <laughs> Who knew? I mean, you want to play around with thou shalt not? You know? The stories in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures about what happened when they did are not very heartwarming stories. <sighs> seven years, seven generations of famines and pestilence. You know. So, this is real stuff. This is how the Buddha Dharma comes to the West. You know, when the Buddha, teachings of the Buddha arrived, they didn't arrive in a vacuum. We have had religious teachings here forever. So what do you do? How do you make sense of that? Big question. So, they make offerings to Buddhas beyond measure, revere, honor, and respect them. Hmm. So do I? Question. Here's how I make sense of it. Number one, I think Shifu, Master Shenhua, was very aware of the existing thinking because he was a very skillful, expedient teacher. So he made Buddha images very friendly. He demonstrated respect to them, told us stories about his own personal Amitabha image that he traveled, traveled with him. But he made Buddha images very approachable. He didn't make the Buddha image a center of power, for example, that you had to be kind of hold your breath around the Buddha. He would say, uh, here, would you go clean it? You know, you got to dust it. Get up, climb up on the ladder, you know. Get up there and kind of, you know. Now, look at that. Uh, it's friendly, huh? You know. He would unpack the image so that bit by bit I realized that I was able to relate to it what? as an object. It's a statue made of wood or bronze or plaster or paper mache or gold leaf, you know. And he had us do, we could practice yoga in the Buddha hall. We did Tai Chi in the Buddha hall. We did Batuanjin right in the Buddha hall. We could eat in front of the Buddhas. We, could, we slept in the Buddha hall. We slept sitting up. We slept in front of them. So the Buddha images became companions more than they were power item, items, power objects that you had to kind of negotiate your place with. Not. They were there. They are part of it. And he said, meanwhile, if you bow to the Buddha, you know what happens when you bow to the Buddha? He said, you get less arrogant. Oh, where's the Buddha in that? Mm -hmm. That's the direction you bow in. Bow this way. If the Buddha's here, you don't bow that way. Right? Put your butt to the Buddha and bow. No. You put your head to the Buddha and bow. Okay, okay. So the Buddha's there, but you're bowing to remove big me. You're doing this 
Because it feels good to set that down. And when you do it, there's less. Right? Less. Relax. Bow. Set that down. And the Buddha is someone who did that. That's a human being put up there not because he wanted us to bow to him. Somebody else said, let's remember what the Buddha did when he put it all down and found the middle way through hard work and trying. Through making mistakes and saying, I blew it, I try again. And succeeded. There's nothing inherently sacred in that object, was what Master Hua was telling us. It's what that represents in humanity's successful transformation of selfishness and ego. That's what that is. You can respect that. Because it's so hard. It's so hard to do it. We had somebody this morning at lunch, I won't say who it was, say, boy, it was so great to do the 10,000 Buddha's repentance. I bowed and bowed. And I, I really felt light and free. And I came back home and within two days all my anger came back. <laughs> and I heard that and I thought, yep right on. I completely recognize that. Didn't take long, huh? Before those habits. Because they're why they're strong. They're really strong. That's why when we hear about the Buddha, he completely transformed it. You go, yeah. I can respect that because I know how hard it is to turn those habits around. That's worthy of respect. Someone who, when they come home, don't get angry after two days. How hard that is to really root out the wombing, that cover, the darkness that covers the what? Perfectly bright nature. Nothing there. Nobody home. But boy, because of our habits, there's somebody there and he's not very nice. <laughs> She's pretty full of habits, right? as we all are. So, that's where the respect comes from. That's where the what? You respect, you revere, honor, and respect them because they've done something really hard. I'll bow to that. Because <laughs> why? I don't like all that stuff in the way. I don't like to be selfish and greedy and jealous and petty and ignorant and covered over and dishonest. I don't like that. But boy, it's all there. Until it's not. Until you cultivate it away. And the Buddha put it all down and did that. Good job, Prince. You did it. I'll bow. That's different. When I heard that, I thought, let me bow. <laughs> Buddha, okay. Okay, Buddha, Bodhisattva, okay. Stand still. <laughs> I respect that. The sooner I can transform that stuff, the better. Thank you for reminding me that it's possible. The Buddha images are there to remind us that it's possible to really do it. Okay, that's different. I like that. All right, one verse. By golly, we only got one verse. But this is an important verse. And I didn't, uh, I liked last week so much, but we only got there the last five minutes. The. Um, 
com- skillfully comprehending the teachings of the sutra texts and adapting them to the ways of the world. By golly, that's so important in what this monastery, as well as City of Ten Thousand Buddhas and places where um, we turn the Dharma wheel, to make the sutras come alive is so important. And I I wanted to say how grateful we are to have Master Hui Feng here with us because he is doing that. He is here for a uh, program in translation of Buddhist sutras from Sanskrit into Chinese and into the languages of the West. So he's he will be here for several weeks. We hope frequently with us. So pass on what you learn in the seminar. There's some uh, really accomplished and um, illustrious professors, Louis Gomez and others, um, who are here to lead that seminar. But it'll be right here in Berkeley for a few weeks. The translation of uh, how does how do they explain it? It's the methods of translation of. Methods of translating Buddhist texts into English using Sanskrit as well as Chinese. All right, great. Well, we have reached that time again. Time to uh, transfer the merit. So, if you have one of these in your text, the dedication of merit, we'll do that and get set up. Michael, to save time, let's, let's just go. Time is precious. So we'll um, let the guitar's natural resonance fill the hall. How's that? Okay. Um, the 10,000 Buddha's repentance is done. And uh, I have a happy story to relate, which is... Um, I, I won't give his name because it's it's uh, we all know the people involved. But there was a there was a grandma who entered the the hospital close by two days before the end of the repentance, and the layman who. Uh, hoped that grandma would wait until the repentance was over, uh, got the call. And the doctor said, her, all her inner organs are beyond help. This is probably it. 
I don't advise you to try life support. So all the family met and said, okay, we're Buddhists and we don't necessarily want to try to artificially keep her alive. That's not, she didn't want that. So let's just recite and make her happy, make her comfortable. So the family met and decided to do that. And so the layman called me uh, as he was driving down from the city and jumped in the car, went over to the hospital. And so there was Grandma. And I looked at the monitor and the vital signs were already stable. Blip, blip, blip. Looking really good, you know. And she opened her eyes and this sharp, you know, sharp gaze was looking out. What's going on? Who's messing around here? You be quiet, you know. Could you give me some water? You know, it's like, okay, you know, grandma's in charge. She always has been, you know. She's like, she's tough. She made it through the war by herself. She's raised her kids and now her grandkids. You know, so we're reciting, and she's she's in there reciting, having a good time. You know, I wouldn't say having a good time, but she was definitely. She was very aware of what was going on, and uh, there we are, and. I think she was hoping to get to the Pure Land, to tell you the truth. And if Amitabha was going to meet her, she was going to have her passport in her hand. You know, I'm, I'm here with my visa, ready to go. So Grandma looked pretty, pretty good, given everything. So two days to go in the repentance, and the whole family's in the hospital reciting, reciting, reciting. And get a phone call uh, yesterday, two days ago, I guess. And the phone call said, Sure, Fasher. The doctors let her go home. She's fine. <laughs> I said, boy, that's just about the time the transference from the, the transference of merit from the ten thousand Buddhas repentance was in the air. Pretty amazing. So I think uh, now what's really going on I can't tell you, but I know she's out of the hospital and doing fine. So. Somebody was being sincere, for sure. So, let's transfer the merit. Make good wishes for the world. Share the fruits of peace with hearts of
this world of